Grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel 31. 1 Samuel 31. Uh, we, uh, well, you'll find that on page 273 of your pew Bibles. 1 Samuel 31. And uh, we want to read the whole chapter, and Lord will, and we will accomplish just that. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The writer of 1 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchai Shua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword, thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. But Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. When the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. The Philistines came and lived in them. Next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethsham. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul, the bodies of his sons, from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabeth and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the Tamaris tree in Jabeth and fasted seven days. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as always, we ask you to open our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet, uh, that your word would transform us, that we would, in fact, declare the king is dead. The king uh, Long live the king. May I decrease so you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. May be seated. In 1422, French king, King Charles VI, died. And upon his death, it was announced for the first time in history as a matter of public policy, that phrase, the king is dead. Long live the king, upon the announcement that now Charles VI's son, Charles VII, would assume the throne. That phrase, first uttered by the French, uh, was, it was adopted by most of the European nations, one of the few things the French actually gave us. And, uh, uh, and really the last time that, that we really heard it, particularly on the British side, was in 1952. 1952, King George, I believe he is the, the sixth. You can't keep track of all that. Just change. Just come up with a different name for once. We not go with a King Bob just once, other than the uh, minions, right? I mean, um, the King, King George VI died in 1952 and was succeeded by his daughter, who was still queen, Queen Elizabeth II. And so it was announced throughout all of England, the United Kingdom, the king is dead. Long live the queen. But what happens when not only is the king dead, but all of his heirs and those closest to him die all in a single day? He, we discover in this passage, who consulted the dead, the next day 
joins them. We begin with the death of Saul here in verses 1 to 7. Now, the way the narrator tells the story is he wants us to see that while, while David is rescuing his, his, uh, the, the family of all of his men and his own family, his wives and his children, from the Amalekite raiders, while that is happening, Saul is engaging in battle against this, this uh, giant Philistine army. Remember that the, the, the Achish, King Achish gathered all of his army, which is why uh, David's uh, little uh, adopted home, Ziklag, was, was under threat because the entire army was gone. Um, and this is why you don't do what Achish did. But, but, so while, while David is doing that, Saul and his army are fleeing from the Philistine military. And we see there in verse 2 that as the army is fleeing from that army, three of Saul's four sons are killed amid the battle. And some scholars suggest it is very likely that Saul, who would have overseen the, the, the military planning, would have witnessed his sons die in battle. Remember, these sons would have, were, were military leaders themselves, particularly Jonathan, and they were likely fighting with their men, and one after another, each of them die. Jonathan, we know, we have followed his story quite a bit in 1 Samuel. He was loyal to an end even to the point of dying for a man who had lost all control. His two brothers mentioned here, Abinadab and Malchai Shua, are a rare presence in the Bible. Really, all we know about them is that they were sons of Saul. However, we should note there is a fourth son of Saul. His name is uh, Ish-bosheth. That name will be on the test at the end. Um, and uh, um, for those who are watching online, you have to spell it right. Just uh, Ish-bosheth. He is nowhere to be found. We, we don't know. Does, did he survive this battle? Was he, was he somewhere else on some other uh, mission, maybe as an ambassador or something, something like that? We, we just don't know. He, he plays a role in 2 Samuel, which we're going to take some time before we ever go back and look at 2 Samuel. But he plays a role in that he is actually crowned king over Israel. And actually what we, we discover is that when you come into 2 Samuel, you discover that David is crowned king over Judah and Ishbosheth is crowned king over Israel. Now, if, if, if that sounds familiar to you, it's because after Solomon's sons just makes a mess of things, uh, uh, Rehoabim, uh, the kingdom is divided between Israel and Judah, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Well, what we see here with Ishbosheth and, and David, again, this is all in 2 Samuel, is that those divisions are apparent, are apparent already. I mean, that shouldn't surprise us, right? It's not like whenever Lincoln got elected, South Carolina, Mississippi, and, and Georgia, and everyone else thought, you know what? Suddenly, I decided we don't like the North. I think we'll just secede. No, no, everyone knew it was going to happen, right? Even right now, we, we know where divisions are. There's a big difference between coastal America and, and inland America, right? There's a big difference. Big difference between New York and Indiana, you know? Uh, and uh, that's coming from a Kentucky boy, right? Having to side with Indiana. That's how bad New York is. Um, but but we, we understand this. So we already see these d divisions. Regardless, in a single battle, in mere moments, the house of Saul, like the house of Eli in, in the earlier chapters of 1 Samuel, fall under the judgment of God. However, in verses 3 to 5, we see that after he witnesses the death of his sons, a, a fairly common scene, the last king of Israel, uh, of Judah actually, uh, had to do the same thing, witness the death of his sons before being tortured and killed himself. Um, he commands, or rather he, he is wounded himself, likely a, a mortal wound, uh, and he commands his armor bearer to finish the job, right? So, so you got the long archers, they see Saul, they shoot, they aim, they fire. So clearly they are not 
uh, stormtroopers. They actually hit hit their mark for the three of you who who find Star Wars jokes still funny. Um, a couple things to note about this this uh, armor bear and uh, this scene. First of all, the armor bear that Saul asked to murder him essentially um, would have been David. This is the position David held prior to his slaying of Goliath. So, so the reason I'm, I mention that is because had all the stuff between um, David playing the harp and whatnot for Saul and the death of Saul, had all those things in between not happened, guess where David would have been? He would have been dead. So all this stuff in between was the means by which God actually preserved David's life. So while David is fleeing for his life, risking his life, God in the end was actually preserving David's life. I mean, this is what 1 Samuel 16, David came to Saul and entered his service and Saul loved him greatly. He became his armor bearer. Now, what a change that has been from where we've dedicated so much of our time in this story. And how quickly it happened within two or three chapters. Second reason why this scene is so important is the armor bearer's job was to protect the king at all costs. Now, now, now Saul says, or it says here that Saul wants to go ahead and die because he doesn't want to be tortured and humiliated by the Philistines. He knows the Philistines hate him and, and, and would, have, would have really tortured him. And so he is asking for mercy here. However, it is the job of the armor bearer to, to protect the king, right? He's a bodyguard, among other things. And so if the king dies and you live, guess who else is going to join him in the grave? You have one job. Remember that David called out Abner after he snuck into to Saul's uh, bedchamber, stole his spear, right, and his cup of water, which I still don't understand why the details are there. But, but this, he grabs the spear and everything, and he shouts at Abner, the bodyguard, the armor bearer, right? Why? Because you failed at your job, and you should die because of this as a result. And that likely explains why after Saul's suicide, he, he does the same thing. But the third reason this is significant is because it parallels Abimelech in the book of Judges. In uh, Judges 8 and 9, we, we see that, you, you remember the story of Gideon, right? He's most known for, for his little ragtag of, of uh, band, his, his merry men, who go and uh, deliver Israel, right? It's, it's a matter of faith. Gideon becomes a, a heroic figure. They want to make Gideon king. He says no, but he did uh, name one of his sons Abimelech. Abimelech means my father is king. So, so Gideon isn't king, but he's naming his, his, his son Hey, Gideon is king, basically, right? So you do with that whatever you want. Now, he had 70 sons, so one of the reasons could be he ran out of names. I don't know. I mean, at some point, right, you may have to start using numbers at the end of um, uh, it one and it two, I, I, I guess. But um, nevertheless, Abimelech, the son of Gideon, uh, after Gideon's death, Abimelech seized power for himself, first of all, by murdering all of his brothers, now, if he has two brothers, that's tragic, but he's got 70. That, that's, 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 a, that's almost a genocide, right, of an entire family line. Now, one of his, his brothers ends up escaping, and this is actually what leads to Abimelech's death. Well, what happens is after three years, Abimelech, the pseudo-king, is, is essentially a king over a city, uh, an area of Israel called Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem eventually get tired of everything. They're, they're uh, there's reasons for that, but, but just, just give, give the brief end of it. And in Judges 9, in the middle of this battle, a woman uh, grabs this, this giant millstone at the top of the wall, hurls it over the wall, and it lands on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. 
And so he turns to his armor bearer. He says, I want you to finish the job. Lest it be said, a woman killed Abimelech. Ladies, male ego has been around since the very beginning. It is the greatest thing about men. It is the worst thing about men. When you figure that out, you'll understand men. Right? It is that, it's that complicated, but it's really that, that simple. Go ahead and finish me off, lest it be said that a woman killed mighty Abimelech. And so the armor bearer did precisely that. You see the similarities? What does Saul want? Finish the job, lest the Philistines come and humiliate me. But this time, the armor bearer doesn't. Now, the Bible does this all the time. We don't have time to get into all this. The Bible does it all the time. Let me, can I give you just one example of this? You remember the story of Solomon and Gomorrah? Right, where, where, where Lot offers his daughters to the crowd outside? That story is repeated at the end of Judges. It's actually how, how the book really ends and what comes out of that civil war breaks out because of it. A man, because of the mob outside, offers his daughters and they accept them. It's the same story with a different ending. The Bible does this all the time. We have the same thing here. It's the same story with a different ending. Why? The narrator wants you to see that the mirror of these two kings, one is a pseudo-king, the one is anointed a king, but at the end of the day, they are both, they die as pseudo-kings because God's anointing has not been on Saul any more than it was ever on Abimelech. Rather, it rests upon David. In verses 67, we see the consequences. Saul, along with his three of his four sons, his armor bearer, and all the men with him die in battle. And as a result, the rest of the army flee. They're, they're, they're without any leadership. They, they don't know what, what, what to do. They're going to lose this battle. They're outnumbered. Not only that, but the people of these cities, they are forced to flee because uh, of, of this, this battle that, that the Israelites have, have lost. Now, clearly, this is a complete and utter defeat. This is the same Saul that had had success over the Philistines on multiple occasions. And now he and his kingdom are destroyed by the Philistines. And one wonders if, if the Philistines had kept marching, what else could they have conquered? In the end, Saul dies the way he lived. He destroyed himself and everyone around him. And you see also that had David not fled for his own life, he too, as we said, would be in that pile of bodies discovered by the Philistines. What we need to see is, as we come to the death of Saul is, is how First Samuel's come full circle, right? The Bible, when you read it, is a really well-written book. If you would just read it as, as it is presented. Let, let me show you how we've come full circle. First Samuel begins with the rise of the Philistines. It concludes with what? The rise of the Philistines. After everything in between. We need judges. We need kings. We need prophets. We need this. What happens? The rise of the Philistines in the beginning... Rise of the Philistines in the end. Secondly, we see that 1 Samuel begins with the Philistine victory. It ends with the Philistine victory. Even after, giants are slain and they are held at bay. Thirdly, we see that 1 Samuel opens with the hopes of a new king. It concludes, does it not, with the hope of a new king, a new and better king. Clearly, Saul failed as a king. Israel was no better off because of his leadership. And it seems that the monarchy experiment has completely failed. So we not only see the death of Saul in this chapter, we also see the desecration of Saul. 
In verse 8, we see that after the battle, the Philistines do what the victor always does, right? You, you, you go out through, through, through this sea of, of, of bodies, and you're, you're going to, for one, you're, you're going to find survivors of your army, and you're going to try to get them feel better, right? Um, and, and so you're, you're going to protect them. You're also going to see to it if any of the enemy is still alive, you're going to take them as prisoner or go ahead and, and finish the job there. And what you're going to do with, with all the bodies left of your enemy, you're, you're going to take all of their armor and their weapons. Why? Because not only can you now use their weapons and, and, and technology against them, but you don't want them to, to, to use it against you. Right. So so this is a very typical. This is where they're doing. They're surveying the bodies. And, and it is in this context they they discover the bodies of Saul and his three princesses. This is quite the discovery. And given their hatred for Saul, they decide to brutally desecrate his body. They, they do this in a number of ways. First of all, they stripped and behead Saul. It's there in verse 9. Now, the stripping idea, again, you, you would strip of, of everybody of, of armor and weapons and whatnot. Um, but but now they, they are stripping the king. And and this is both a literal stripping, you know, for every, everything we talked about. It's also a, a, a literary device. It's a metaphorical stripping. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. In, in the 14th century, I believe it was, a man by the name of John Huss. From, he's called John Huss. He's actually John of Hussenek. Uh, he, he shortened it to Huss, which actually means goose. You can do with that whatever you want. Um, he began preaching and teaching what we would now call Reformed doctrines. He was a pre-Reformation leader, very influential in Martin Luther's life. If you ever see a painting of Luther, you see a random goose over his shoulder. It's, it's a paying homage to John Huss. Nevertheless, John Huss was declared to be a heretic. He was burned at the stake, but prior to being burned, he was brought publicly into the cathedral where he was literally stripped of his priestly garments. It was a, it was a public way, a symbolic way of saying your priestly ordination, your priestly rights, your priestly authority has been removed from you, it's been stripped from you. The same thing is happening here, is that Saul is, is finally and forever being stripped of his kingdom. They don't only just strip him, they, they, they behead him. And the irony is, is here, isn't it, right? You remember that, that it is Saul who sends David to fight Goliath. And, and I know we skipped this part in Sunday school, but do you remember what David did to Goliath? He beheaded the giant and brought it to the king as a trophy. Now notice what is happening here. That same king who is king, one of the reasons is because he stands above everyone else. He's tall, right? The average Jew at this time would have been about five and a half feet tall, right? And so to be a giant, you've really got to be, you know, a point guard in the NBA, right? Basically, right? You don't have to be that tall. So let's just say Paul is, is, is six foot tall. He is the giant of Israel. What happens to him? He's beheaded and it is turned into a trophy. Not only that, but we discover in, in 1 Chronicles 10, 10 that they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. Again, there's so much irony in this chapter when you, when you bring the whole book together. The reason that is significant is, is we didn't look at the stories that's in the earlier chapters. You remember when the Philistines come and they attack Israel and they steal the Ark of the Covenant, right? And they bring it into the temple where Dagon is. And you remember what happens to the Dagon? Well, everyone else, they get these boils and everything else. It's, it's the plague. So they practice social distancing. Still didn't work. They put on masks. Still didn't work. They locked down. Still didn't work. And they discovered the problem is it's, it's, uh, um, um, 
It's, it's the Ark and the Covenant, right? And so they, they get rid of the Ark and the Covenant. But you remember what they discover when they go into the temple to get the Ark and the Covenant? Dagon the idol, their main god, is fallen down, cast, er, 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 prostrated before the Ark and the Covenant, and his head has been removed. Now what are they doing? The king under that god, now his head stands there with a repurposed Dagon. It's not an accident. All of that is put there. Not only that, but we see in verse 10 that his corpse is hung at Besham. So while presenting the head of Saul to Dagon, they hang his body in a nearby town of Besham. Besham is not far from where Saul was anointed king, thus his reign and his death are near the same location. And ironically, 1 Samuel opens with scenes of godly worship. Remember, Hannah is praying for a son. It begins with godly worship, and it concludes with Saul's lifeless body and head decorating the walls of pagan worship. Now, we need to see some parallels here. After slaying Goliath, David takes his head to Jerusalem, and his sword, Goliath's sword, ends up in Nob. Remember, David gets the Goliath's sword in Nob. We, we saw that back several chapters ago. Thus, what happened to the pagan Philistine warrior is what has happened to the king of Israel. And in ancient Near Eastern culture, how one treats the body of one's enemy is reflective of what one really thinks of that enemy. So if, if you had an enemy, but you respected that king, I think we, we understand this to a certain extent. You, you, you respect the, the, the leader of, of still your enemy, but, but there's a sort of respect and honor there. You would respect and honor the body, right? If you loathe that person, you would do the sort of thing that we have here. So Saul dies in contempt, hated by everyone. Well, despite the desecration of, of Saul's body, we see in verses 11 through 13, a group of men um, from Jabez Gilead, which isn't far away from Beshan, uh, decide to risk their lives to provide a more honorable barrier for, for Saul. There's a lot here, but I just want us to quickly uh, make a few points. Now, the reason why, the likely reason why these men do it and no one else does is because early on in Saul's reign, Saul delivered these men from the Philistines. So this is their way of repaying gratitude. They owe their life to this king. And it's a reminder to us, isn't it, that Saul started off so well. It became consumed so much. Well, they bury him under a Tamaris tree. There in verse 13, they mourn the death of their king. Again, there's so much here, but, but I, you, you just do a quick study of Tamaris tree and what it means and everything and the role it played in Saul's life. We just don't have time for it. But I do want to mention a few things. First of all, David will later rebury Saul and his sons. Um, it's sort of like when we just walked, the Kentucky government just walked into Missouri and says, oh, by the way, Daniel Boone's our, our boy. We're going to take him, right? You know, I don't know if you know the story. Of that. That's what we did, right? We'll take that, you know, uh, and uh, we did, right? So, so we got Daniel Boone right here um, uh, looking over our state government. You can insert your joke there. But David will later rebury Saul and his sons. That happens in 2 Samuel 21. What a reminder that Saul may have been David's enemy. Or David may have been Saul's enemy, but Saul was not David's enemy. I think there's something we can learn from that. But also the seven days of fasting and mourning uh, was briefer uh, that the uh, people of Jabez Gilead offered. It's actually quite brief. For example, when Aaron and Moses each died, uh, they died separately. Um, each of them were given 30 days of mourning. Saul here gets seven. Can I add a footnote here? 
uh, just, just a little footnote. It's not part of the text. Just a footnote. Something I've been thinking about, and you're free to correct me uh, if, if I'm wrong, and I probably are. Um, I think one of the things we're missing in America, because we are consumers, um, we don't take seriously a period of mourning the way we should. Throughout the Bible, it's seven days, 30 days, two weeks, whatever. It was understood, look, this person is in mourning. And there's a process of this mourning. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. And, and after that end, you say, okay, I've had my period of mourning. It is time to move forward. What we sort of do is, okay, we have a funeral. Two days later, we had dinner. Enjoy your leftovers. Everyone's going to go back to their life. And then you're expected to go back to your life. You do with that whatever you want. This is something that's been on my heart and mind here, here lately. How do we really think about mourning and lamenting? I'm not sure the church is really led in that the way, way, way we, we probably should. Nevertheless, we, we see here, the, 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 the chapter ends. It opens up in prayer and worship. It ends in fasting and mourning. So then what, what, what do we do with this text? How is it going to change our life, and what should we gather from? I just want to emphasize three things we see in this text. The first thing we see is um, the, the very real judgment of God. The very real judgment of God. Throughout the narrative, the reader is warned that this day would come. In fact, the judgment of God is a common theme in Samuel. Eli, the high priest, um, dies in 1 Samuel 4 as a result of the Philistines. Eli has served for 40 years. And he can't, comes under the judgment of God. By the way, his sons die with him as well. Saul, after 40 years of ruling and reigning, he dies by the Philistines along with his sons. Eli fell off his seat and died. Saul fell on his sword and died. Although the judgment of God is largely mocked today, only fools would do such a thing. This is Paul's point in Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. What we need to see here is that God's judgment is real, and God's judgment is under his sovereign providential care. God will carry out his judgment in this life or the next. And in Saul's case, he brought the next life into this life to reemphasize that he stands under judgment. What Samuel says in chapter 28 is exactly what Samuel said before he died. As a reminder, it is Saul, because of your actions, you are under the judgment of God. And there is no escaping of that apart from the grace of God. What a reminder it is for us that God's grace is always open and always available. If only we would receive it. But there will come a day when judgment will be our lot. For we have remained forever a, a rebel. We see here the, the tragic reality of the judgment of God. And it doesn't need to be this way, does it? This is what gets so frustrating is all these problems we have are unnecessary. Saul's death, unnecessary. Saul's legacy, unnecessary. He started off well, and he had one opportunity after another to change his way, to, to change his course, and to repent. And he chose not to. This scene need not be reality. But because of his rebellion and disobedience, judgment was his end. And that reminds us, secondly, that death does indeed come for us all. Another irony of this passage is that prior to this battle against the Amalekite raiders, David turns to God in prayer. While at the same time, or roughly the same period, before his battle against the Philistine army, Saul turns to a necromancer. 
You remember what what it is Samuel said again. The Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. So despite his best efforts, Saul could not escape the inevitability of his own death. Death will come for us all. The question is, are we prepared for that day? And it is as Lewis argues that when we die in Christ, it is life forevermore after that. The glory of the gospel, the the beauty of the gospel is that when we die in Christ, we don't need to fear death, though it will come. Because eternal life begins now. The joy of then becomes ours now. The longing of our hearts is fulfilled because of what awaits for us there is promised to us now. The contentment and the love and the peace that we all want in this chaotic world of COVID and chaos can be ours now. But if we stand under the judgment of God, death is certain. And another death of eternal loss is even more certain. History is full of examples of men and women who tried to bypass death and find immortality here on earth. One of the great examples of this is China's first emperor. I I will not even try to pronounce his name. He infamously sought an elixir of immortality, it was called. And ironically, which is the the word of the day, if this were Pee Wee Herman's playhouse, ironically, the elixir that was supposed to give him eternal life led to his premature death. It was poison. It had mercury and other things in it that caused his death. Death will come for us all. Can I give you just one other point of application from this text? You tell me if this is a, a present one. It is foolish to trust in human power. It is foolish to trust in human power. By the end of 1 Samuel, Eli the priest is gone. Samuel the prophet is gone. Saul the king is gone. Israel is now without prophet, without priest, and without king. So Saul's rise to power was motivated by a natural desire to trust in a single individual to keep them safe and secure, to keep them taxes low, the economy booming, and to get rid of all the bad guys. His administration began promising, but power and fear consumed him, and the entire nation suffered as a result. We have discovered here in our country that as trusted in human power and institutions increased, trusted in a sovereign care of God decreases. Every election since I've been alive, 1984, when Reagan beat that other guy that couldn't get more than one and a half states, right? In the landslide, every election, what was it that people say? This is the most important election of our lifetimes. We said that in 1984. We said it again in 1988. Said it again in 1992. I remember 1996 with Bob Dole. And then we said it with W, right? Then we said it in 2004. Then we said it in 2008 and 12 and 16. You remember 16? Oh, we can't let so-and-so in there. Or we can't let this other so-and-so again. This is the most important election in all, in, in all of our lifetime. Four years later, well, we, we're shouting even louder. And guess what? Now the election is over with. Because that was the most important election of our lifetime in four years, it's going to be smooth sailing from here on out. No, it's going to be worse. It's going to be far worse. And we know it's going to be far worse. But are we going to do anything about it? No, we're going to join in the chorus. Because we have put our contentment and peace and hope in in fools in leadership. Why do we do that? You tell me. 
You tell me, which one is more foundational and secure? A God who, who, who is sovereign over the affairs of man, including people who get elected you to vote for. Or the people who get elected in the system. You tell me which one is more foolish. Why do we trust in human power so much? If your joy is found in legislation, you will never find joy to begin with. If your hope is in an election, you'll never possess that hope. Why do we trust in Saul's when God has given us the son of David? If we want the church to remain relevant and prophetic in our society, we must surrender the false idol of human power and trust in the care of God over his church. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, even if we voted for Caesar. Jesus is still Lord. Which reminds me, the real point of this text isn't about the death of the first king of Israel. It's about the death of the last king of Israel. Like every passage of Scripture, it's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. It is ultimately pointing us to Christ. Can I give you just just a few reasons to, to consider that here this morning? Christ spent his final night in prayer with the Father, like David before him. Saul spent his final night with a medium. Jesus consistently trusted and obeyed the will of God, even if it meant his own death. Saul spent his last evening in rebellion against God, denying the certainty of his death. Saul turned to the dead in hopes to save himself. Jesus went to the dead to save you and I from ever facing eternal death. Jesus laid down his life for others rather than to take it up himself. Saul laid his life down for himself and everyone around him suffered because of it. See, we as Christians, when we read this passage, what should stick out to us? We read it and and we could hear the people of Israel shout, can't we? The king is dead. So everyone flees. So what hope do we have then? But what about us? Is that what we get from this text? No. Do we not announce Just as loudly, yes, the king is dead. But the good news is, long live the king. Let's pray.